you will grab your copy of God's Word this morning, we'll open up to the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, Matthew chapter 13. Remember that last week we looked at verses 1 through 9 and then we skipped over to verses 18 through 23 because there Jesus gave the explanation of the parable of the sower and... So this week, we're jumping back to verse 10, this little interlude between the telling of that parable of the sower and the explanation of it, and looking at verses 10 through 17 this morning. And before we do so, let's go before the Lord in prayer uh, together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would open it before us this morning, that you would speak to us, that we would clearly hear your voice. If you are not moving, it really doesn't matter what I say this morning. If you're not stirring, it really doesn't matter what word we read from the Scripture this morning. You must open ears, you must open eyes, and we pray that you would do so in our midst. Keep us attentive to your voice and help us to see your truth and to see it with understanding. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. This is the holy and errant word of God. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. In your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. As the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, as we referenced last week, Uh, From this point on, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will more often than not teach and preach in parables. And I think if we were just to ask the average person, why is it that Jesus teaches in parables, most likely the answer would be, well, He teaches in parables so that He can connect to the people that He is speaking to, so that they might have some sense of understanding, that average person. And, And there's truth to that. Maybe we get that from listening to our politicians today. 
It's been a long history of politicians to try and connect with the average Joe, as they say. Maybe the, the first to do that was Andrew Jackson, who was considered the first populist president. He knew how to connect with the average citizen, the average Joe. I think probably the best to do it in the history of politics in this country was probably Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he could tell a story that just connected with the average person while he was on the campaign trail. And someone would hurl an insult at him, one of his opponents, and he could quickly deflect it by just offering a joke in response that the people connected with. My, my favorite is when one of his opponents called him two-faced. Lincoln was not the most handsome of men, and uh, his rejoinder to that person immediately was, if I had two faces, do you think I would be wearing this one? Uh, he knew how to turn a phrase and connect with the person that was listening. Teddy Roosevelt did it well as well and was a man of the people because of that. In recent history, you'll remember that Bill Clinton did it famously when he went on the Arsenio Hall show and and played the saxophone in front of the country. Is this why Jesus tells parables? To connect with the average person. Well, I want to look at that question this morning. But first, though, let's answer the question, what is a parable? We have to answer the what before we can answer the why. What is a parable? Well, we have at least 46 different parables that Jesus tells throughout the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. They aren't hard to identify. The most famous, of course, are probably the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the Good Samaritan. They're easily understood. They use familial terms. They use societal terms that people could pick up right away. But we have parables that involve farming, we have parables that involve fishing and judges and begging for alms and sheep and goats and masters and servants and seeds and soil, all things that people would have been very familiar with, things that would have been part of their culture of the day. Maybe the best way to define a parable is in this way. A parable is a teaching expressed in concrete examples by doing so, seeks to convey a truth. It is a teaching expressed in concrete examples aimed at conveying a truth. You'll notice that parables are more than just pleasant mental pictures. They're more than that. They're, they're meant to convey a truth. And most parables are seeking, seeking to convey a truth, one central truth truth, one main truth. In fact, interpreters throughout the history of the church have often grown into trouble or fallen into trouble by attempting to translate all kinds of different things in the parables and make more than one truth come out of the parable and kind of allegorize a parable. The most famous in the history of the church is probably Origen for having done so, and he taught a whole generation of preachers to do so after him. Just as an example, when Origen interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan, he tried to define every part of the parable, so the man who set forth on the road was Adam. Jerusalem was paradise. Jericho was the world. The thieves who came and robbed the man were invisible demonic powers. 
The priest who came along and neglected him was the law. The Levites who passed by were the prophets. The Samaritan was Christ. The wounds he needed to recover from were signs of his disobedience. The beast that was that the Samaritan placed that wounded man upon was the body of Christ. The inn which he took him to was the church. The Samaritan's promise to come back was a second reference to the coming of Jesus. Now that'll preach. But it's fanciful. And that's not the purpose of the parable. Parables are not meant to be interpreted allegorically. Every element standing for something else in reality. Most have one central truth. There are some parables that have different truths that they are coming to bring to bear upon the listener. Not every single thing in a parable has some reality. One central truth is what most of them are seeking to convey. This gets at our second question this morning then. Why did Jesus speak in parables? This is the question the disciples are coming to Jesus with. They Come to him in verse 10 and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? That is, couldn't you, Jesus, just be more direct so that they could understand better? Let's consider that. It is true that parables are meant to connect with the average person. So yes, Jesus uses everyday scenes to communicate for a reason. He does so so that they might connect with the parable. But it's also true that he speaks in parable to hide things from the average person. He does both. What do we mean by this? Well, parables are meant to connect God's truth to those who believe. And they're meant to hide God's truth from those who do not believe. If we take something like the parable of the Good Samaritan, an unbeliever may say that they understand it, but more often than not, they are just flattening out the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they're simply interpreting it to mean that we are to be kind to one another. Oh, is that a truth? Yes, it's a truth. But it's not the truth of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that a lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to justify himself. He asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus then shows him through this parable that all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us. That none of us is perfectly good towards all people and none of us is perfectly good towards God. None can do enough and live. Even the seemingly most righteous, no one can justify themselves by works. And so the the right interpretation of the parable is that Jesus is leading his listeners to that end to say that I, I can't do enough good to everyone. I can't do enough good to God. I am not perfect. And so it forces you to run to Christ. He forgives our sins. There's a depth of truth that the unbeliever will never understand. Parables of the kingdom aren't simply seeking to teach sweet moral lessons. They're meant to serve 
as mirrors, causing you and I to reflect upon our own lives and force us to ask the question, where do I stand in relation to the kingdom? Where am I in this parable? What is the state of my heart in the kingdom? Those who do not know Christ, they can't see the truth. Not in its full color. Knowing Christ is a prerequisite for understanding the parable. Augustine once commented that it's like a person who looks at beautiful writings in a foreign language. It may be calligraphy, and you can observe the beautiful writings, and you can say that is a beautiful thing, but but you don't understand the meaning of it. You don't understand the depth of it. A favorite illustration I remember hearing years ago, um, a theologian said it's much like looking at a stained glass window outside of a church. You can tell it's a stained glass window, but the colors, they're very dull. They're not vibrant. You can kind of make out forms in the stained glass window from the outside, but you can't quite decide what it is that it's picturing. Once you're inside the church, once you're on the inside, then the stained glass is radiant. It comes alive. It's brilliant in color and every form you can make out within it. And so Christ's parables can only be rightly understood from the inside. He says to his disciples that those on the outside in verse 13, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he says in the first part of verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. They're not meant to understand. It seems unfair at first glance. But notice verse 11. Jesus speaks about the secrets, he says, of the kingdom of heaven. Some of your translations may say mysteries there. Jesus says to his disciples that it's been given to them to to know these secrets. That is, they've been given to know these mysteries. And he says to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who does not, even what he has will be taken away. But that isn't unfair. That's just a principle of life. If you don't know the first thing about something, you can't know the greater things about something. If an individual does not know addition and subtraction, they cannot know calculus and algebra. No one would attempt to train a young man to pitch a split-finger fastball or a curveball or a change-up if the young man doesn't first know how to throw a ball. A marathon runner doesn't begin running marathons. He must first or she must first know how to walk. An unbeliever cannot understand the greater truths of the kingdom if they deny the very first maxim of the kingdom. Jesus is Savior and King. If Jesus is denied as Savior, then all the rest makes no sense. 
a secret. It's a mystery because it's impossible for people to figure out these things in and of themselves. And this gets to our third question this morning, which the parables point out here. Who is sovereign in salvation? Who is sovereign in salvation? That's what the parables are pointing at. What is a parable? A parable is teaching. It's a teaching expressed in concrete examples and thereby aims at conveying a truth. Why speak in parables? Because parables are meant to connect God's truth to those who believe and meant to hide God's truth from those who do not believe, which points us to the sovereignty of God in salvation. Who is sovereign in salvation? Jesus is clear here. Man is not sovereign in the economy of salvation. God is. This knowing and understanding, this faith, is something that is given. Verse 11, and he answered them to you. It has been given to know, but to them it has not been given. Disciples, you were given the grace to believe. God gave it to you. But he didn't give them the grace to believe. Jesus is clearly asserting the doctrine of unconditional election, that God in eternity past predestined some to be the objects of his salvation. And Jesus is clearly asserting the opposite doctrine of what we call reprobation, that God predestines some to be the objects of damnation. Try to understand these two doctrines from the text regarding God's sovereignty and salvation this morning. First, God's unconditional election. They know these mysteries because Jesus has quoted, has been given to them. It's not achieved, it's not something that they have secured. They know these mysteries because Jesus says it has been given to them. Salvation is simply received. What's the cause? The cause is God's sovereign electing love. That's the cause. The crowd is not received. Why? It's a secret. It's a mystery that they can't attain it on their own. It's impossible to know God, to understand kingdom truths in and of ourselves. Jesus is making that clear. about this in preaching. Preaching is a very interesting thing. I like that parable that we looked at last week. It is my job up here just to scatter the seed as you're evangelizing and as you're ministering, your job is just to scatter the seed. And it's interesting. I can preach what by all accounts would be the most technically perfect sermon and it can have zero effect. I can preach what is, by all accounts, a miserably put together sermon, and it can have great effect. What makes the difference? Purely the Spirit of God working in the hearts and the minds and the spirits of the people that are listening. When we interview individuals joining the church here at URC, you will often hear a reference to the preaching. 
when you can sit in on these membership interviews, you could do it at probably any church and hear the same thing. It happens in every single membership class multiple times where someone will say, before I came to this church, I, I never heard the gospel preached. I never heard it so clearly. Now that can make a preacher kind of puff up in pride if he has a wrong theology. What's happened? It's probably not that they've never heard the gospel preached. In fact, I would hazard a guess that most of the people that say that have heard the gospel preached dozens of times. They just haven't heard it. It's been preached to them, but they heard it with closed ears. They saw it preached to them, but they just didn't have opened eyes. Seeing, as Jesus says, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear. What is the difference now? It's not the preacher, not the one who stands before them, but the one who works in them. They were now given ears to hear. They were now given hearts to receive. They they were made fertile soil. Why? Why would this be true of someone here? Or why would this be true of the disciples? Why would they be given this understanding? It wasn't because they are better than others. It's not because you're better than others here. It's not because the disciples were better than the rest that were in the crowds there. Neither was it because God saw that they would become better as he looked down the corridors of time. No, Salvation is in sovereign act of God's electing love. In Romans 9, Paul discusses this very thing as he speaks about Jacob and Esau. He takes twins, twins that are together in their mother's womb. And while they were still in their mother's womb, Paul tells us that Jacob was loved, but Esau was not. Why? Because of something they had done? No, they had done nothing, yet they're in the womb. Why? Because God had looked down the corridors of time and saw something positive in Jacob and not in Esau? No. That is not Paul's answer. It was simply God's sovereign will. As Paul asks in Romans 9.21, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. It's His sovereign right. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given, Jesus said. It's purely by His divine decree, an act of His sovereign electing love, If it is for any other reason, then God is not sovereign. There is something else that dictates to Him. There is something else that controls Him. And if that is true, then we are without hope in this world. He must be sovereign. Sovereign in all things because that is our only hope in this world. 
because we would never come to Christ. We couldn't. We wouldn't. We're blind and we're deaf to the truth of the gospel. In fact, we were hostile to it. John 9, we see example of this. Jesus is with the disciples and he's walking along a road and there is a blind man there along the road. Jesus sees this man, a man that no doubt countless people would walk by for years, most likely decades as we read the account. Jesus looks upon that man and he has compassion on him. Now, no doubt, there were people that walked by this blind man who was looking for alms and had walked by him and had compassion on him before, but they didn't have sovereign power. Jesus looks upon him with compassion and with sovereign power. And so he heals him. He gives him sight, this man that has been blind since birth. The crowd, they are absolutely amazed and they are elated and ecstatic. And so they run to the Pharisees with this man that had been born blind and they begin talking about how this man's sight is restored. You see the depth of the hardness of hearts and the Pharisees' response. They want nothing to do this truth. Now Jesus, before he touches the man's eyes, he refers to himself as the light of the world. As the psalmist says, in your light do we see light, speaking of Jesus. The Pharisees want no such light. They recognize, first of all, that the man is now healed, but they don't want to accept that truth. They, they quickly seek to use that to accuse Jesus. And so they say, look, Jesus healed this man, gave him sight on the Sabbath day, and no one would do work on the Sabbath day that is truly of God. And so they turn it. They falsely accuse Jesus. When the crowds don't buy into that denying of Christ and Christ's work, they then sought to call and to question the healing itself. They say, well, surely this man was not born blind, and so they doubt the man's testimony himself. But then the crowds, they speak up and they say, we've known this man all of his life, and we know that he was blind, that he was born blind, and the Pharisees reject the testimony of the crowds with their hard hearts. So then they call in his parents, and his parents come and they say, yes, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind, but now he sees. And the Pharisees reject the testimony of his parents. Because of a hard heart, not wanting truth. And so they call the man back in who had been born blind. Because they're going to hear from him a second time. Is it really true that you were born blind? And they say to this man, we know that this Jesus is a sinner. And the blind man answered them, he said, whether he is a sinner, meaning Jesus, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How 
did he open your eyes? And the man replies, I've already told you how he opened my eyes. I told you the first time around. And he asks them, why do you want to hear it again? As Jesus says in our text, hearing they do not hear. Or as Isaiah says in this passage that's quoted in verses 14 and 15, you will indeed hear but never understand. Why? Because of what it says in our text in verse 15. This people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely hear. This is a prophecy about the people in Isaiah's generation who have rejected God. And so God sends the prophet to preach to them so that their hearts become even more hard. Because they won't listen. Love, this formerly blind man, asks the Pharisees when they press him to tell them again how he has been healed. He asks this, he says, do you want to become his disciples? Blind man understands. John tells us that the Pharisees reviled him. Reviled him. Why? Because he had seen their heart and called out their hearts. But they were as hard as stone. And the Pharisees in reply to him say, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They have heard. They have seen. And yet they persist in unbelief. These hard-hearted Pharisees say in response to the man, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It is they cast him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him. What links a hard heart will go to deny truth? It cannot listen. It cannot see. It will not. Jesus must open the eyes. He must give the gift. account in John 9 ends with Jesus hearing about the blind man being cast out of the synagogue and he goes to that formerly blind man and he asks him the one necessary question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man answers, Lord, I believe. John tells us that he just fell down on his face and he worshipped Christ. Why? Because he had been given the gift of sight. Not just physical eyes. But that he could see Christ with the eyes of his heart. It was given to him. A sovereign gift from God. 
God has predestined some to election. That is, they will come to salvation. This is the undeniable teaching of the Scriptures. In Ephesians 1, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And if God has predestined some to election, but not others, then some are predestined not to be elected. And that is the doctrine of reprobation. It's seen clearly in Romans eleven seven, where Paul says, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Isn't that unfair? No, nothing could be further from the truth. And Paul addresses that in Romans 9. When he asks in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Three truths I want you to understand about God's sovereignty and salvation this morning. First. God is the cause of our belief, but He is never the cause for those marked by unbelief. God is the cause of our belief, but He is never the cause for those marked by unbelief. He gives the gift of salvation. It's His work. But as the canons of Dort rightfully say regarding reprobation, they say the cause or guilt of this unbelief, as well as of all other sins, is no wise in God, but in man himself. The cause for unbelief lies within us. It comes from us. Turton gives four reasons for why we cannot attribute the cause of our unbelief or our sin to God. First, God has a right to deny salvation. He isn't required to give grace to anyone. Second, the power of sinning. The power of sinning, which we have in ourselves, does not result from this denial. The denial isn't the cause. Our fallenness is the cause. Third, God denies grace. This grace is something that the unbeliever is unwilling to receive. And which, in fact, the unbeliever despises since there's nothing the unbeliever less wants than the Holy Spirit leading their life. For God doesn't deny grace so that they sin, so that they might receive the judgment for sin. The cause of unbelief and the guilt of unbelief lies within us. Within us. How can that be? Isn't God sovereign? Well, that leads to the second truth about God's sovereignty and salvation. There's not an equal symmetry between the doctrine of election and the doctrine of reparation. That is, God does not work in the same way in both the elect and the reprobate. In eternity past, God chose to elect some 
And he chose to work faith in their hearts and bring them to salvation in Christ. But it would be wrong to think that in reprobation, God works in a similar manner upon the unbeliever. He does not work sin in their lives to bring them to damnation because he's never the author of sin. Let's try and make sense of that a little bit. God elects some to everlasting life. And so he comes to them by his grace, by the power of the Spirit, and he regenerates an individual. He gives them the gift of faith. It is wholly a work of God. It is what theologians will call a monergistic work. God does the work alone to bring us from death to life, to bring our hard heart into a heart of flesh. He gives us the gift of faith. But the non-elect, God withholds that work from. He passes them by with His saving grace, as the Westminster Confession says. He does not work sin in them. He does not work unbelief in them. That's already there. That's already taken up residence in them as a result of the fall. They don't see and they don't hear because they don't want to see and they don't want to hear. That's not the cause of that sin. As the canon of Dort says, reprobation is not the cause of unbelief and impiety. God never has to compel men to unbelief our natural condition as a result of the fall. See, here's the amazing thing about our salvation. Is that Christ comes into an already fallen, an already unbelieving, an already condemned world. Often ask the wrong question. Say, why doesn't Jesus save all? Wrong question. The question is, why does Jesus save any? Why does he save any? There's a presumption in the first question. Why we presume that for some reason God should save all people. And in fact, he should condemn all people. The fact that he saves any should blow every circuit in our head. And that he saves any is a sovereign act of his mercy and his gracious, abounding, steadfast love. He's not required to save. Yet he does. Remember the context here. It's the parable of the sower. And though his sovereign man is still responsible, the fact that some are passed over by his grace does not take away the responsibility of man to believe. The free offer of the gospel is made to all. 
Notice in the parable that the seed is scattered as far and wide as it can be across every type of soil. But doesn't that steal responsibility from people that God is sovereign over salvation? Well, and this is our third truth. I want you to understand about the sovereignty of God and salvation. No, it doesn't take away our responsibility. If you want Christ, Christ is yours. He's yours. He's freely offered to every single man, woman, and child in this room. And if you want Christ, He's yours. There's never a person who has desired Christ in the world who has not received Christ. If you truly want Him, in reality, you've already received Him. So many get caught up in being scared that maybe they're not of the elect of God. Am I elect or am I not elect? Ah. Scriptures nowhere tell you to try and figure that out. The secret plans of God or His secret plans. That fear doesn't need to be here. You and I don't have to analyze this. That isn't what the Scriptures ask of us. They ask us to simply believe. Just to believe. And if you believe, you are the elect of God. If you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and come to Him with empty hands, and confess that you are a sinner and that you are in need of His righteousness and in need of the forgiveness of your sins, then you're saved. It's offered to every single person. If you believe in Christ, you are of the elect of God. We haven't been tasked with searching out God's hidden will. We're simply commanded to believe. And so you believe. You believe. He, he's held out to you. You believe. And oh, the benefits. Jesus closes in verses 16 and 17 with saying, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Blessed, blessed beyond measure. He says, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. And imagine what the prophets longed to see. Imagine what they did see. And Jesus is seeing what you see is even better. You see Imagine what the prophets heard. They heard the very voice of God speaking to them. And he says, what you hear is even better. You hear from me. So I take up residence within you. And it's held out before you today. Will you believe? Will you believe in this Christ? Will you have eyes to see and will you have ears to hear? And if you have believed, then this text should be quite a warning to us that where there is unbelief within us, it is a dangerous thing and we want to stamp that out by His grace. I remember as a young seminarian, I remember 
despising the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. I, I found that it left a bitter taste in my mouth. I was remember one night Lee and I were driving home from work and I remember sitting out in front of our apartment complex and we put the car in park and I was just in tears. Because people at work had been leading me through the scriptures and I was seeing the sovereignty of God and salvation in the scriptures and I found it absolutely detestable. I remember saying to her, to my shame in that moment, I said, if this is the God of the scriptures, I don't want to believe in him. That's how offensive I found it. I thought it puffs people up with pride. And it steals away the glory of the gospel. On this side of having eyes open to this truth and having ears open to this truth, I find it does just the opposite. And so can everybody testify that sees it clearly relayed in the scriptures. It is the most humbling of all doctrines. And it brings the glory of the gospel in full force shining through that window. Because you stand there and you say, who am I, Lord? That you would open these eyes. Why, Lord, would you open these ears? I know what a wretched sinner I am. Why would you take this heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh? Why would you give sight here? And you can't help but do what the blind man did, just point to Christ. And then bow down and worship. That is what God's sovereignty and salvation does. It just humbles the sinner. And it gives him all the glory. May we have eyes to see. May we have ears to hear. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you unstop deaf ears and you open blind eyes. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you came to seek and to save the lost, not for the righteous. We give you praise, O Spirit, that you take dead, lifeless human flesh and spirits give new life. Oh, what a God you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truly, the salvation that we have is unlike anything in all of the universe. And how there should be thanksgiving from our lips and praise to you. We pray this morning for those in the room this morning that do not know you not know this love of Christ, that are not on the inside looking at all the glory of Christ shining through the windows of the gospel, 
you would do a mighty work this day, that they would do the one thing you ask, to believe. Do you believe in this Son of Man, as Jesus asked? And we pray that as they come to the end of the day, they might be able to say with that blind man, I believe, and bow down and worship. To your praise and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.